what right do we have to break the great chain of life with our deadly technologies, with our ecological damage that we inflict on the world? Who are we to do this? And I think that can help give us a kind of a perspective of what I think of as deep time humility. Welcome to Cambridge Forum. I'm Mary Stack, the director of Cambridge Forum, and today we're kicking off the new year with a refreshing and radical look at our long-term future. We're assisted on this journey through the imagination with the vision and wisdom of Roman Krizanarik, public philosopher and author of The Good Ancestor, a radical prescription for long-term thinking. Roman is joining us today from Oxford, but he grew up in Sydney and Hong Kong before coming to Oxford, London and Essex to pursue his education and gain a PhD in political sociology. His previous books have been published in more than 20 languages. His latest book is both a self-help wake-up guide as well as a scathing critique of today's society whose short-term exploitative mindsets have in his world colonized the future. But all is not lost. Chris Norick says, if we can learn to trade our myopic self-interest for long-term planning and adopt some cathedral thinking and five other techniques to ensure we might be able to save the planet for our children. So welcome, Roman. It's a great pleasure to be here, Mary. So what can you tell us about uh, why you wrote this book and was it just good timing or had you had it in the works for a long time? Well, often there's a moment where the idea for a book comes to one. But actually, for this book, it was creeping up on me, a recognition that we are in an age of conceptual emergency where so many people are saying we need more long term thinking. There's too much short termism in politics, in business, in media, in the health, public health and so on. But what does actually long term thinking really mean? Are there different types? Is it always good for us? And that's partly what I set out to do, to try and do an anatomy of the idea. So what about bringing this down to a very local level now, um, individually? You talk in the book about this process. Actually, it's not like therapy, but it, it is a self-help kind of thing of, of confronting and envisaging your future ancestors and your previous, you know, your grandfather and your great-grandfather, and that you actually did this, and then you write a letter. This is an actual exercise you can do. So could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so I've run workshops and been participants in them myself, where the idea is to try and really develop the idea of what I think of as a legacy mindset, feeling that intergenerational connection, which is so difficult. So for example, I've got a 12 year old daughter, and I can close my eyes. And with the wonder of the human imagination, I can imagine her on her 90th birthday party, surrounded by family and friends, and loved ones. I can go and in my mind's eye, look out the window and see what's going on in her world. Is it a world of utopian uh, renewable energy and the fossil fuel economy is gone or is it a world on fire? Mm. And in this kind of exercise, certainly one of the ones I've done is you imagine your child or a young person in your life at the age of 90 and they are about to give a birthday speech. But instead of doing so, they decide to tell the room about the legacy that you left them as a photo of you on the mantelpiece. So, you know, what legacy did you, this now departed ancestor, leave for this young person and their world? 
and you can write about it and talk about it. And there's great workshopping activities that can be done around it. But what I've learned by doing that kind of exercise is if I think of my daughter when she's 90 or her grandchildren who could live well into the 22nd century, what I realize is they are not alone in the world. They are part of a web of human relationships and community, and they're part of the web of the living world. There's the air they breathe and the water they drink. So if I care about their life, well, the only sane conclusion to draw is I must care about all life. So that kind of imaginative thought experiment is a bridge from a what I think of as a familial sense of legacy to something much more transcendent. And that, of course, is the ideal of being a good ancestor. So we really have to adopt this tribe. If we don't have a tribe, we have to kind of create a tribe, at least mentally, for us to have greater vision or greater aspirations. Particularly if you don't have kids, you have to create this kind of familial connection, correct? Well, a familial connection is not the only way to become a long-term thinker or to practice it. There is another trick to it, which I discovered while researching this book. And it really occurred to me when I was reading the work of the brilliant biomimicry designer and architectural thinker, Janine Benyas. And she asked this question, well, what can we learn from 3.8 billion years of nature, nature's wisdom? And she says this, she says, well, you can ask yourself, well, how have other species throughout the history of the living world, how have other species, species learned to survive and thrive for 10,000 generations or more when they can't be around 10,000 generations from now. And she says this, she says, the trick is that they have learned to take care of the place that will take care of their offspring. Mm. In other words, they've learned to live within the boundaries of the ecosystem in which they're embedded. They don't foul the nest, which is exactly what humans have been doing with ever increasing speed and ever increasing scale for the last 50 or 100 years, blowing us out out of planetary boundaries. So we're using on average 1.6 planet Earths each year in terms of resources. This cannot go on. So the, the, the trick I want to talk about there is that if you want to think long term, really, it's as much about regenerating place as about extending your horizon in time. It's about restoring and repairing and caring for, for the world that would take care of your offspring. So it's about falling in love with rivers and mountains with savannas and with ice sheets and i think respecting a beautiful mohawk blessing which is spoken when a child is born thank you earth you know the way so in there is something about place as well as time that anyone can have part of whether you're you know you have children or you don't i also like the quote in your book i think um i don't know if it's an apache saying you said something about not inheriting the land from our ancestors, we borrow it from our children. But you said, legacy is not something be we leave, but something we grow, which I thought was beautiful because it reminded me of that African tree planting, amazing woman. How many trees did she plant in her lifetime? Wangari Matai, who yeah. in 1977 founded the Greenbelt Movement and they planted tens of millions of trees as part of the Greenbelt Movement and trained tens of thousands of women in agroforestry skills. And that's one of those classic kind of legacy projects, you know, which goes way beyond your own lifetime. We all get a taste of this when we plant a tree that we know will mature uh, long after we're mm -hmm. gone. But I think that's something we can tap into in everyday life in all sorts of ways of connecting with that longer sense of now. I mean, as you asked that question, I was just thinking about how 
for my 50th birthday just a couple of weeks ago, I went with my partner and kids on a bike ride to visit a local tree, which is a yew tree, which is over a thousand years old. And we climbed in the tree and had a picnic in the tree itself. And this for me was about actually connecting with something that even goes beyond human lifetime. It's about connecting with deep time, those longer cycles of time, reconnecting with cycles of moon and sun and stars and the carbon cycle. And I think when you're in a tree, which is a thousand years old, that you know was there at the time of the Norman conquest and will be there long after you're dead, it takes you out of this moment to something a little mm. bit more transcendent but it isn't easy to grasp that sense of deep time i mean deep time's a new invention it's only been around since the early 19th century when the first geologists started making discoveries and recognizing that the earth wasn't just six thousand years old as the bible said it was at least millions possibly billions of years old and touching that is quite difficult i sometimes go with my kids to hunt for fossils on the beach on the south coast of england and sometimes we've held a 195 million year old fossil in our hands a little squid like creature called a belamite and it gives you a sense of awe and wonder of course translating that into the world of the cut and thrust of politics or the stock market is a different matter we've got some more questions down there i don't know if you saw one pop up just then well let me read out this last one this last one, which looks a little critical, and I like it. I'm afraid this discussion is too fanciful for words. As you point out, we have a species, as a species, constantly kept alive the illusion that we're in charge, entitled and empowered to do whatever we wish in our ecosystem. This is just not true, yet we're all thinking it is our future as a species that counts in the ecosystem. It does not. Well, there's an interesting perspective there, really, that, of course, Again, thinking about deep time, we have only been here for a cosmic eye blink. The 200,000 years of the human species is, you know, almost nothing on the scale of the history of the universe and the five or six billion years until our sun possibly dies. And of course, on some level, that might make us think, let's throw up our hands and think, well, you know, our species is going to die. The earth is going to go on without us. So let's not worry about the future. Let's not necessarily invest in long-term thinking or future generations. But I approach this somewhat differently. Actually, when I think of those great expanses of time itself, what they raise for me is the question of a question of responsibility, really, which is, well, what right do we have to break the great chain of life with our deadly technologies, with our ecological damage that we inflict on the world. Who are we to do this? And I think that can help give us a kind of a perspective of what I think of as deep time humility. And it's recognizing, of course, the earth is bigger than us, but we are interdependent with it, that we need to recognize that the air we breathe was has argon atoms in it that was were breathed in by the Buddha and by Cleopatra and will be breathed in by people 10,000 generations from now. So that's the answer to that question. But why don't I have a look at some of the other questions uh, which are coming down the chat, if I can read them. We've got Tim asking a lot of questions. It's crucial to think about the long-term future, but what we need to realize is that we're part of nature, not apart from nature. This becomes the crux of the problem. Can we as a species learn to participate in a non-anthropocentric world? Well, that is incredibly challenging. It's That has been the challenge, I think, our inheritance, particularly in Western culture, of the idea that humankind is different from so-called nature has been 
drummed into us by Christianity for hundreds and hundreds of years, the idea of dominion, that we have control over the living world. And I think that idea that we are interdependent with it is, I think, one of the great struggles for us as a species in the 21st century. I can look out my window now and see an ash tree. Now, that ash tree provides enough oxygen for four human beings every day. So that tree a part, is part of my external lungs. And this is you know, something that has been explored by E.O. Wilson in his book, Biophilia, that we are intimately linked to the living world, but we tend not to think of it in our everyday lives, partly because of that Christian inheritance. But I think ultimately we need to find those ways of connecting with the living world that you can do workshops with Joanna Macy. I mean, there's all sorts of ways to try and do it. I'm not saying I find it easy to escape my anthropocentrism. You know, um, you know, I am a human being. I am connected to my own species. And if I see a car that is about to hit either a squirrel or a small human child, and I can only save one of them, I instinctively jump for the small human child, of course, because they are part of my species. And that is deep part of our evolutionary heritage. But it's certainly true that we need to cross that gap. You are listening to Cambridge Forum as we continue our discussion with Roman Krisnarik about what makes a good ancestor. Krisnarik is a public philosopher and author of The Good Ancestor, A Radical Prescription for Long-Term Thinking. You know, the Doomsday Project took stock of everything and land and all the rest of it. I was thinking maybe it's time that people actually did that because they can't envisage the future with no oil and, you know, the carbon dioxide taking, you know, taking over and, you know, fires every day of the week. I mean, this this Armageddon scenario, unless you're in Australia when it's happening, it's very hard for people to really see that as their problem, Um, even though I think it's encroaching more and more on our consciousness and our reality. So if we actually took stock of what was left in real terms, this is how much common land is, this is who owns the land, this is how much free water there is access to that isn't owned by Coca-Cola, this is how much oil there's left, Um, And to get to it, it's going to involve, you know, fracking this whole natural reserve here. I think if people were made much more informed about the realistic consequences and the short timeline that we have left, do you think they might actually wake up if, if it was made really apparent like you have 20 years left or maybe 20 years is too long. Maybe it needs to be made much more in terms of their own life. What's going to change in the next 10 years? Well, I like that idea of a new kind of doomsday book, but in many ways, I think it's already going on. I mean, people have been mapping, mm. you know, the forests that are around, whether it's using Google Maps or the work of the Stockholm uh, Resilience Institute, looking at what's happening to ocean acidification levels or chemical pollution. So there is a level on which I think that kind of mapping is happening, particularly the rewilding movement, I think, is doing some of that as well, looking at, OK, where are the areas where we could be reintroducing wolves to Yellowstone Park, this kind of thing, and to make it make a difference. But I think you're certainly right that it's not a big part of public consciousness, our sense that this world around us is something that we must care for and cherish, that we must be custodians of. And I think rather actually than a, a doomsday book, I that's kind of measuring or quantifying and writing down every little every little bit i think we can actually go for something simpler which is the idea of thinking about nature as a public trust 
And there's a growing body of law around this. And I'm not a lawyer. And if there's any lawyers listening, I'm probably saying this completely wrong. But there's a wonderful book by a legal scholar in the US from the University of Oregon, I think, called Mary Christina Wood. And it's called Nature's Trust, Environmental Law for a New Ecological Age. And her argument is that we need to see things like the atmosphere as a public trust, which governments must look after for the coming generations. In the same way that you know, a state can't simply sell its coastlines to private companies. Mm -hmm. They shouldn't be able to do this with the air we breathe or the water in the in the rivers um, or, or in the oceans or with the soils. And this is the basis, this kind of public trust litigation or public trust legal work is the basis of these lawsuits by organizations like Our Children's Trust. So in a sense, it doesn't need a lot of measurement. It needs like a constitutional declaration that these are part of the common good, these basic things which are required for human life. Because I have to say, the thing that really shook me to my, to my core was seeing the founder of Extinction Rebellion addressing a small group of people at a town hall meeting in England. I watched it on the internet. And he painted such a really graphic picture of what we are looking at that I was, I mean, you, it would have sent you, people were sitting there shocked. And it, it's difficult because you, you want to shock people into action, not into paralysis, because it was horrific. You know, he talked about the fact that once the actual global warming starts accelerating, it doesn't do it on this nice leisurely graph. It goes like this, and then there's no coming back. And I don't think anyone had ever said that in such graphic terms before, that people were sitting there completely alarmed. So it's how do we get people galvanized into change without them panicking or digging themselves, you know, a nice bunker in the middle of the Arizona desert just for their family? I'm certainly not one in favor of that particular approach of, you know, in the UK, there's a debate uh, on the kind of in the green environmental movement between those who favor the perspective of what's sometimes called deep adaptation and those who don't. And deep adaptation is that idea that, right, we are just heading for collapse. So mm -hmm. we've got to pull up the drawbridge and get out the gun or, you know, mm -hmm. hunker down and protect ourselves. And I don't think that idea is helpful, partly because it's historically unproven. The idea that the collapse of civilization is inevitable is not true. Nothing is inevitable in history until it happens. And I think human beings are particularly good in a crisis. That's what the work of Rebecca Solnit is all about, for example. You know, look at 9-11 or Katrina, what happens on the ground? Well, you get people who are rich and poor and black and white and so on, working together in difficult times. You can see what happened when COVID, when we went into lockdown on the street where I live in Oxford in the UK. Um, before, we hardly ever spoke to each other. But as soon as COVID came, suddenly we've set up a WhatsApp group with 100 people in it, and we're delivering food to vulnerable people and swapping bread recipes. Now, I'm not saying that that's utopia, and I'm not saying it happens mm -hmm. everywhere. Mm -hmm. But it just tell us that without being overly optimistic or, or insanely hopeful, that we cannot say that it is game over by any means, even if you recognize, which is true, that UN projections and IPCC projections for sea level rises and CO2 rises are political agreements which take us into a middle road where the reality is we keep hitting the highest projections mm -hmm. year upon year, decade upon decade. So we will almost certainly, I would have thought, hit three to four degrees of heating by 2100. We will have between one and two 
meters of sea level rises. That's certainly the sciences I understood it from people like Johan Rockström and other leading earth system scientists. So we've got to get ready for that on some level. But of course, we know that every ton of carbon we keep in the ground makes a difference. It makes a difference to human life. That's what movements like 350.org are all about. Every single thing makes a difference on this kind of struggle. Okay, I wanted to ask you about the things on the list now in the last 10 minutes, your six pointers. You talked about intergenerational justice, uh, legacy mindset, uh, the cathedral thinking that, one's, that one should take part in. Then you talked about holistic forecasting, transcendent goals and deep time humility. Have we covered all those? I think the one we could say a little bit about more about, and those are six different kind of cognitive tools for long-term thinking I describe my book, is the idea of a transcendent goal. Because I think as individuals, we know if we're gonna have a meaningful and purposeful life, as the existential psychotherapist Viktor Frankl said, we need what he called a concrete assignment, uh, or what the ancient Greeks called a telos, an overarching goal to mm. get us up in the morning, keep us going, give mm. us meaning and purpose. But Carl Sagan, the astronomer, astronomer famously said, well, humankind as a species also needs a goal, uh, a grand telos to aim for. Now, the problem is that the goal, the de facto goal that we've had since the Enlightenment, or at least the Second World War, has been continuous material growth, GDP mm. growth. Governments, mm. whether they are left, right or center, have all pursued basically the same thing. And even my kids know you cannot do this forever. You know, you can't keep blowing up a balloon with the prospect that it's never going to pop. Now, there's people like Stephen Pinker who thinks the balloon is never going to pop because we can just keep having new technologies solving our problems for us. Economic growth will solve our problems for us. But, you know, no amount of money in your pocket is going to reverse the melting of the Greenland ice sheet. You know, we are going over dangerous levels of many, many planetary uh, boundaries, which give us a stable Earth system. So that idea of continuous growth we have to leave aside, you know, I studied economics in the 1980s and I was never taught that the demand and supply diagram is not just floating on a white background, but it actually has a circle around it. It's called the biosphere. You know, this is the work of ecological economists like Herman Daly, who I never got to study. I've had to learn about his work in the last 10 years, but he basically tells us an essential truth about what our goal should be, that if we want a sustainable future, we can't use resources faster than they can be naturally regenerated, can't chop down trees faster than they can grow back, and you can't start dumping our crap into the oceans and into the air faster than it can be naturally absorbed by you know, carbon sinks. And that's the fundamentals of balance. And so that must be our goal, to live within the boundaries of the one and only planet we know that sustains life and not be like Elon Musk and think we can just jet off to Mars to solve all our problems. <laughs> yeah. Speaking about opportunities and situations, we find ourselves in this unique, um, the world finds itself in this unique position, um, all stricken with the same pandemic all in various degrees of lockdown with lots of time to think and plan. There couldn't be a better time for, for going forward. Now, of course, lots of people say that acute crisis is the exact crucible you need for innovative thinking. So do you think the pandemic has actually afforded us this opportunity? And in many ways, we accelerated a lot of social change quantumly, didn't we, in this period? there are all sorts of things that changed in our lives that we never before thought we could deal with, you know, 
tele visits from the doctor and not commuting and yeah, radical, radical change. So could we actually use this to leverage good? Well, I think the thing about crises is that they do move history. They do change social and political, cultural structures and institutions. But there's a bit of a devil's fork problem. I mean, after the Wall Street crash and in the Great Depression, well, some countries like in Scandinavia went towards social democracy. Others went towards fascism. Right. Mm. And and both of those were responses to different kind or, or crisis, uh, but with different kinds of outcomes. Now, after the Second World War, in many ways, this was a moment of flowering for long term institutions. After that crisis, out of the ashes of the war came incredible long term institutions like the World Health Organization or the National Health Service in Britain or the European Union. So one might ask out of the covid crisis, could we get something like that? And I think the reality is we're seeing multiple responses. Um, we are seeing some countries going in a very progressive direction or particularly some cities. Think of how the city of Paris has responded to COVID by closing roads and turning them into parks and cycle routes. Or think of a city like Amsterdam, which as part of its post COVID recovery project has adopted uh, the circular economy ideal that they're gonna be completely regenerative and no waste city by 100% no waste by 2050, 50% by 2030. They're going to have no fossil fuel cars on the roads at all after 2030. They've adopted Kate Rayworth's donut economy model. So you've got places like that. And then you've got other countries around the world. I remember thinking this when COVID first happened, that authoritarian leaders are going to give themselves emergency powers and not going to want to give them up. Mm. There's going to be a potential authoritarian residue. And we've been seeing elements of that in some countries. We're going to see what happens and how things play out in the United States. But there's always that danger of going down another road and, and, and having a sort of regressive response to it. And of course, in some countries, you've just got the reinforcement of denial. I mean, I'm from Australia. And when the big bushfires hit Australia at the end of 2019, well, there were a lot of people saying, well, in the past, we've had bad bushfires and we'll have bad bushfires again in the future. It's nothing to do with climate change. So let's just get on with our lives. And that's a deep form of psychological denial that's very hard to overcome. Uh, if we had to uh, perhaps suggest one thing um, in terms of taking back ownership of your future legacy, Perhaps one would be that you suggested, and I thought it was a very good one, instead of triggering your impulse to buy now on your multiple consumer smorgasbord, perhaps you could resist or put something away for a week, come back, revisit it and say, do I really need that? So this is just a way of exercising the acorn brain over the marshmallow, correct? That's just a little pushing off the, the instant gratification button. Absolutely. In fact, I gave a talk at Google the other day and I said to them, look, why don't you get rid of a buy now button and try and invent a buy later button? Exactly <laughs> as you say. So you press it and there'll be a drop down menu that says, you know, you could buy the item right now or you could buy in a week or buy in a month or borrow from a friend. And if you press buy in a year or buy in a month, you'll get an email after that time asking whether you really want that item but there's all sorts of other things we can do in everyday life i have to announce that today actually i just got rid of my car my fossil fuel car that i've had for 14 years and it's now been sent off to be recycled and we have a local car club electric car club there's a car 100 meters away from where i live and we've now signed up for that as a family but we still like riding our bikes or other practical things like think about well what are you going to do with your money 
You know, I just recently opened after prevaricating for a long time, a, a bank account in a bank, a Dutch bank actually, uh, called Triodos, which is a sustainable bank. Its shares are not traded on stock exchanges. They have a long-term vision. And so I think we can find different ways of how we travel, what we do with our money, all sorts of things that we that are part of our everyday lives, having picnics up yew trees on your birthday like I did a few weeks ago. <laughs> um, I'm not saintly by any means. I am still engaged in the long struggle to be a good ancestor. I still love that buy now button, but I'm dreaming of the day when some clever person in Silicon Valley comes up with that buy later button. Absolutely. I want to thank Roman Krisnarik talking about the good ancestor, a radical prescription for long-term thinking. Cambridge Forum is made possible through the generosity of Herbert and Dorothy Vetter, the Lowell Institute and the Massachusetts Cultural Council. And I wish everybody a healthier and a saner 2021.